all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. We've all been talking about Osama bin Laden lately, as one does. Right, you know, he's on top, he's on top of mind at all times. Um, how old were you when the towers went? How old was everybody when 9-11 happened? I'm actually curious. I was 22. Uh, eighth grade. I was five. <laughs> Six. It seems rude. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> seems like I shouldn't be allowed. I'm so sorry. I was, uh, I was 18. For my street cred, I could smell it after the fact, so... Damn. Yeah, my uncle was in there, and I wiped ashes off my windowsill later Jesus. that day. Jesus. ashes, so... He's fine. I mean, he's, he's living in Maplewood, New Jersey. So, I mean, like, he died, but I remember it being on fire and uh, the train going over the Manhattan Bridge and just being like, Uncle Bobby, especially because it had happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. Was, yeah, in your in your lifetime as a 22-year-old, right? You had like a memory of the uh, Oh yeah, the initial bombing. Yeah, because it fucked up the subway on my way to whatever I was doing. I mean, it was It's fucked up. It was a memorable day. <laughs> um so the reason we're talking about Osama bin Laden with Tim Marchman and Anna Merlin, lovely people, thank you for being here, is that uh bin Laden real hot on TikTok right now. Thanks to the Zoomers. <laughs> what? Emily? And maybe also Yasher Ali? Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. that's yeah. also probably part of it, right? Um, yeah. Emily, can you tell me what the fuck's going on? You live on TikTok. I mean, not of my own volition, <laughs> but just as a part of, of being in this industry and this specific role. Um, but yeah, like, people... The the TLDR here is that people are reading this blog, basically written by Bin Laden, that was like on the Guardian's website. I love that you called it a blog. And kind of, it's it's basically a blog. I think we've all been the discussing take. it as a blog. It's a take. It's, it's a hot Bin Laden's take. Bin Laden's hot take on America. Exactly, um, and people, young people, have discovered this and are reading this. And are posting on TikTok about like, oh, my guy makes some points. And then The Guardian uh, did the very sensible thing of Streisand affecting it. So now um, they tried to take it down or they took the the piece that was being hosted on their website down. Um, and it ended up creating a lot more conversation about it probably than if it had just been left up. So it seems to me from my reading that the conventional wisdom is now becoming... Um, there were like five boomers who thought that bin Laden was making, there were, there were like five zoomers who thought bin Laden was making some points. Um, these were stitched together by Yasher Ali. And then, uh, a bunch of boomers, uh, decided that all the teens on TikTok, um, all love Al Qaeda and bin Laden and his blogs now, um, leading to like, a nesting doll of bin Laden takes about whether people are or are not ready to go over to Afghanistan and become American Taliban. Um, all based on a, a real misapprehension of like how popular this was in the first place. Am I correct there? Yeah. It's, it seems like a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about how virality on TikTok works. 
Um, there was this one, I think it was a piece uh, in Slate that I was just, you know, browsing this morning. And it's like, if you look at the amount of hits, if you search for, you know, Bin Laden on TikTok, you'll get a fraction of, you know, o- over the past couple of days, you'll get a fraction of what was posted even the last, you know, 24 hours on a more popular hashtag like skincare. And mm. so obviously those are two very separate topics. You know, one is not know, always, not always. It, that is let's true. Be, let's be. I mean, yeah. Inter- international affairs of uh, international Sephora affairs. Beard care. True. Just saying. Just, true. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I mean, to me, there are, there are two really cool things with it. One is just that it's, it's interesting. People are, doing the thing they've done for a long time with Twitter. Maybe people are, you know, more easily figuring out how to generate outrage cycles out of TikTok stuff because Mm. it goes to that um, formulation you'll see in a lot of articles where it's like internet users are saying in response to anything and they pull up five random tweets. And it's like, you can find anything you want on Twitter. Twitter is just full of people. You can find anything you want on TikTok. Um, So there's that. But even to the extent that there is anyone um, responding positively to uh, Osama bin Laden blogs. It surprises me it was this one because this is his 2002 manifesto. And it's really just a straight up uh, anti-Semitic screed in which he's telling everyone they have to convert to his vision of Islam or face the sword. Whereas as you go through uh, the aughts, I, I don't know, you know, because because I'm a little bit... Um, older than I think many of the people possibly responding to this are. I I don't know if a lot of people remember this, but, you know, Bin Laden was an extremely wealthy, extremely sophisticated political actor. He wasn't like a guy who lived in a cave. And uh, this stuff was propaganda. So he realized that saying like everybody needs to, uh, you know, convert to Islam or be beheaded wasn't effective propaganda. And so as the aughts went on, he began to like consciously address himself to Western audiences um, like he was Noam Chomsky, the obvious thing here being that he decided and realized that people would say, hey, this guy's got some points if he did that. And it was used um, to discredit, you know, Western leftists. This was a very common rhetorical trope at the time was that, uh, you know, conservatives or foreign policy hawks would take some benign point that Laden was making and they'd say, oh, you know, well. Well, John Kerry makes that point, too. Is John Kerry in league with Osama bin Laden? So it's like kind of mind melting to see people falling into that, but not with the stuff that bin Laden was consciously uh, trying to bait them with, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's really funny to watch uh, like 2006 era cable news conversations get like play out in a more hyper real way on social media in 2023. Um. I do think another aspect of this that I just want to highlight is that uh, boomers are really, really, really terrified of TikTok in a way Mm. that the general public, I think, was of Facebook five years ago. Um, That those kinds of digital fentanyl, you mean? Those anxieties are transferred now, right? Mind control, uh, Chinese influence, which is not like it's it's not un realistic to think that tiktok is you know whatever artificially promoting some things or whatever but it's certainly not brainwashing your children on mass 
Or it is, but because, you know, it's like being fed clips on clips on clips of young Sheldon over and over again. <laughs> you know, it reminds me more than anything of MTV. I mean, there was such a huge... I'm, I'm just young enough to remember like the first few years. Old enough, just old enough to remember the first few years of MTV. There was definitely a moral panic like, oh my God, people are sitting around watching the cars and squeeze all day. Mm-hmm. It's going to turn our kids into soup. They're never going to read a book again. They're never going to listen to any Frank Sinatra. Um, you know, I don't, happened. yeah, I don't know that watching, uh, you know, algorithmically chosen, uh, six minute clips of young Sheldon for hours at a time is really good for anybody's brain. But, you know, personally, I'm, I'm more worried about the brevity of the clips, you know, MTV videos were three minutes long. They demanded an attention span. <laughs> We went through this uh, before in like the 50s and the 60s too with, with comics, right? You had all of mm. these, these. Seduction of the innocent. Mm-hmm. You had all these <laughs> horror comics uh, that, you know, adults and children were reading. Um, there was a moral panic around them, and then comics got sanitized for a long time. Uh, I see a, like it's a similar cycle over and over again with new media. Uh, so TikTok will level out, and then something else will come along that the people who are on TikTok find frightening and the whole thing will repeat again forever. Thank God. <laughs> do we think that, um, do we think that bin Laden has a future as a, as a kindly and benevolent Ted Kaczynski type figure <laughs> in the reaches of social media? I don't. How much Ted Kaczynski have you read? I've, I've read the Unabomber manifesto. Um, a lot of his other, there's a lot of other, he's got like weird short story, like polemic short stories that are pretty interesting. Um, that I think, they maybe, good? yeah, they're, they're okay. Uh, they're <laughs> all right. I won't say they're good. They're interesting. They're they're but they're only kind of interesting because you know who Ted Kaczynski is and what he did and kind of what he believed. Right. Um, I remember reading the, I think, uh, some of them are published in apocalypse culture. Uh, like mm-hmm. those Adam Parfrey books. Um, I think that the, he, Kaczynski's hitting on something uh, that everyone shockingly feels right now about technology, right? Um, and wrote in a way that <sighs> calls to us that <laughs> I don't think the Bin Laden blogs are going to have play. <laughs> Uh, and it, for, for one, I think if most people actually sit down and read like the one that got pulled, it is extremely obviously an anti-Semitic screed. A lot of that's a lot of it is, you know, so I, I don't think it's going to play the same way in the long term. I think that's a good analysis, um, especially because in the propaganda that was more overtly and probably effectively directed at Western audiences, it was also really time sensitive. I don't know if in 10 years people are going to be, you know, reading bin Laden's takes on uh, the 2008 Democratic uh, nomination process and care at all. Whereas Kaczynski definitely has um, a little bit more of a timeless quality. Like he's, you know, he's reacting to things badly, but he's writing about the same things Thoreau was writing about. He's, you know, I'm sure in 20 years, people are going to be thinking about things in, in similar ways. There's an instinct. There's an instinct in like Western intellectual, especially like American thought to go into the woods and be left alone. And Kaczynski was just an extreme version of that, right? Only left everyone else alone. 
Yeah. yeah, that is the problem, right? When you start deciding you you do want to reach out and touch other people. Uh, and hey, that's a segue. Oh lord! <laughs> oh no! Oh, <laughs> to this oh. incredible piece, uh, Tim, that you and Anna have written here about Tim Ballard. Um, I really thought <laughs> I knew there was more reporting coming. <laughs> Uh, I did not think it was going to be something this long, this in-depth, and this absolutely stunning uh, and wild. Thank you. Um, I just want to read, I think as a way to set the tone here, I want to read the opening graph, and then I want to get some background, if that works. Yeah, the opening graph is is really something. I remember when I when you guys sent me the the Google Doc of the first draft of it, I was like, Wait, <laughs> what? What is going on here? Yeah, that's what we were going for. Yeah. Just incredible writing. Okay, so on a sunny day in late October two years ago, Allison's orbital bone was destroyed and her eye was knocked out of alignment when a man twice her size drove his knee into her head. As she lay on the ground, bleeding and vomiting and urinating, and having it explained to her that there was no bone supporting her eye anymore, she heard Tim Ballard say, "Well." We can't call an ambulance. So, just to catch everybody up, I know we've talked about this a couple times on the show before, but who is Tim Ballard and what is Operation Underground Railroad? Sure. So, Tim Ballard is a celebrity anti-trafficking activist who founded a group called Operation Underground Railroad in 2013. Before that, he claims to have been... uh, affiliated with the CIA at various times. He's intimated he was an agent or officer, which definitely isn't true. It's almost certain he was briefly an intern and he was um, an analyst uh, in a division of ICE for a number of years, um, during which time he pursued a career as a writer of pseudo-historical books about how the founding of America you know, the emancipation of slaves and other important events in American history were uh, somewhat anachronistically inspired by uh, various important figures in Mormon history. Those books impressed powerful figures in the LDS church, brought him into uh, kind of a circle of rich and influential donors. And allowed him to fulfill his dream of starting a basically a reality TV show company, which would film him personally rescuing uh, trafficking victims overseas with the aid of paramilitary operators. So this group became very popular, especially in Utah. It's attracted about a quarter of a billion dollars in donations over the last decade and became uh increasingly influential in the in the broader sphere especially in conservative politics um ballard became a partisan political figure he was appointed by donald trump to head uh an advisory board in charge of making recommendations for federal anti-trafficking policy he was repeatedly lauded on like the cbs evening news with footage of him purportedly rescuing child sex slaves um, he and the Pittsburgh Steelers coach, Mike Tomlin, were shown on Sunday Night Football looking for traffic children in Haiti. He just became a very 
odd and influential figure who was kind of the popular authority on human trafficking and um, increasingly a figure legitimizing QAnon rhetoric, I think would be a fair thing to say. Now, he's always said that he doesn't support QAnon or anything. However, um, he's, you know, talked about the Wayfair conspiracy, that that children were being sold online by a furniture company, something that seemed plausible to him. He's talked about, uh, you know, like the trans agenda, grooming, all the moral panics that we've had in the country over the last few years. He was a little bit ahead of the curve on. And because he had this background in the CIA and Department of Homeland Security and as the head of this ostensibly respectable anti-trafficking organization, um, he was someone who, when he was making that point, he didn't come off as like batshit as a lot of other people do. So he's so he's in this weird space at the nexus of a lot of a lot of crankery and a lot of um you know, concerns people have for their children, panics over kidnapping, things like that. Um, earlier this year, a movie he uh, was involved in the production of, which is a heavily, heavily, heavily fictionalized version of his life called The Sound of Freedom, was released several years after it was made. It was marketed to uh, religious and especially Mormon and evangelical audiences with um, you know a variety of creative marketing schemes like have your church buy a bunch of tickets and give them out to people so they can learn the truth about human trafficking, pay it forward, et cetera, et cetera. It became a huge box office hit. Um, it's made about a quarter of a billion dollars worldwide. It was making more money than Mission Impossible when they were out at the same time. So it started to get a lot of attention on Ballard, who um, had already been tipped as a potential Senate candidate. Um, he became much more politically active. He was giving testimony in front of Congress, calling the Biden administration at the you know, like a, I forget the exact phrase, but it was, he was basically saying it was institutionally uh, a child trafficking ring, uh, pedophile delivery service, something like that, like really uh, insane rhetoric. He's about to uh, announce his run for Senate and then several, several bad things happen. Maybe Anna, do you want to explain what happened right as he was on the cusp of yeah, announcing his so- Senate run? Um, Tim Ballard was supposed to announce his Senate run on October 10th of this year. Um, that was apparently the day that, um, the Lord communicated to him that he was supposed to announce his Senate run. That did not happen, um, because we reported that he had left OUR earlier in the year following a sexual misconduct investigation. We had reported several months prior that he had left OUR. Uh, we didn't report at the time that it was due to a sexual misconduct investigation because we wanted to nail that down. So once we reported that Mr. Ballard had left OUR because of this investigation, um, it opened the floodgates and uh, a number of things happened very quickly. Um, the most sort of uh, notable one was that we contacted the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for comment because Tim Ballard had been holding out um, a very senior member of the church to be uh, at the very least, like someone who approved of OUR's activities. Um, Some people involved in OUR had said that he implied that this senior member of the church was maybe like um, a silent business partner in some of his other operations. Anyway, we contacted the church for comment about this and they issued a completely unprecedented, very personal denunciation 
of Tim Ballard to us, um, basically saying, you know, that they uh, were what what was the term they used him morally unacceptable yeah morally behavior? Un- behavior regarded as morally unacceptable so anyway um, yeah they haven't done this for an individual in decades generations um and so it indicated to mormon audiences especially that something really crazy was going on and so in the next few weeks or yeah i think it was weeks it all happened very quickly um it became known through our reporting and the reporting of other people that um, Mr. Ballard was being accused of sexual misconduct by women who had volunteered for the organization, who had gone overseas with him on missions to act as his sort of wife or girlfriend to play that role in an undercover capacity and said that in that role, they were um, groomed and sexually coerced by him into um, sex acts. And so uh, now a group of those women are suing Mr. Ballard, and so is one of their husbands, I believe. Um, and yeah, there just, are yeah. there are two separate suits, two lawsuits as of now. One is uh, five women who are all alleging the pattern of behavior Anna just described, and then there's a second suit in which uh, one of those, uh, another woman and her husband, are suing um, and basically you know, claiming that this caused problems in their marriage. Um, And it was just reported yesterday that um, one of the women being represented by Suzette Rasmussen, the attorney representing this group of women, went to the police in Linden, Utah, and there is a criminal investigation that has been opened in Linden. So between October and today, November 17th, um, Mr. Ballard went from a potential Senate candidate to someone who I think would have a very difficult time um, not just running for Senate in Utah, but maybe doing any public facing anti-trafficking work for the foreseeable future, I think is fair to say. Yeah. He was also, he's, he's been, he's widely believed to have been uh, excommunicated from the church. Although we can't confirm that due to the nature of having your membership in the LDS church. Um, removed the church will will not confirm that they they just they just it's it's like a cia thing they will they will neither confirm nor deny they're not going to talk about it and um so it would be on ballard to say so and he's been a little bit evasive about his relationship with the church right now but it is universally believed that he was very credibly that, that he was excommunicated as a result of these uh behaviors and activities and that's the the story that y'all reported out here is uh, kind of an in-depth view of how this thing operated, how he acted uh, while on these operations, all from the view of a woman named that you call Allison. Yes. Um, can you tell us who is Allison? So... Allison, which is a pseudonym that we're using um, because she has concerns about her, her safety and her privacy. Um, She is, she's a very impressive and interesting woman. She served in the Marines for six years. She had uh, specialized tactical training from her work with, uh, with government agencies. Um, She was a volunteer on an anti-hijacking mission 
in uh, in South Africa. And in addition to that, she's a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in working with people who have extreme childhood trauma, including uh, survivors of trafficking. So while all that wouldn't necessarily make her suited for private undercover anti-trafficking missions, it would that's like a pretty ideal background for someone to be trained for that kind of work. So during the during the pandemic, she the early stages of the pandemic, she was seeing a lot of uh, OUR material on social media due in in part to its origins as, as basically a reality TV company. OUR has always emphasized uh, cinema. They you know they would they would um, go on these go on these missions to uh, save women and children, which maybe that's maybe weren't exactly what they were cracked up to be, but the presentation was that they would have undercover teams going to Thailand or Haiti or the Dominican Republic or any one of a number of other countries working with local police, uh, doing paramilitary and, you know, intelligence type stuff of their own, identifying targets, getting traffickers busted, getting women and children out of bad situations. Very slick videos, very convincing. And again, the organization for a long time had the uh, imprimatur of, you know, the most mainstream outlets are. So she's seeing all this stuff and she's like, I work with people who have been, you know, severely traumatized. It, you know, I have the skills I could, you know, I could go in on these missions and help get people out of these situations before, you know, they end up being someone with horrible trauma, right? Like very understandable motivation. She starts volunteering uh, with a regional OUR group. Um, she didn't and doesn't live in or near Utah, which is where OUR is based. But they have regional chapters all around the country. And basically what she was doing was, you know, volunteering to help raise awareness of trafficking and like training organizations on what trafficking looks like. We've we've heard from a lot of people that of, of the constellation of different kinds of work that OUR does. Um, this is some of the more effective work they do. They have people who, you know, they go out into the community and you know, they, they tell people about trafficking and, and we've talked to people who've done this work and, and, you know, they say it's, it's very straightforward stuff. Like they, they give people accurate information about like, you know, labor trafficking is the most common type of trafficking. You're most likely to be trafficked by someone close to you. Uh, you know, things like that, just dispelling some myths um, and giving people information, good stuff. But she continued to think that she could perhaps be more useful um, in an operational role. And um, so she was, you know, she was a little persistent about this. And before too long, she was able to get her resume in front of uh, some OUR hires up who were, who were very impressed. Um, you know, her, her, you know, it's a, it's a, again, like pretty much an ideal resume for this kind of thing. And uh, they flew her out to Utah to, to talk with some people and see, you know, what kind of work she might be interested in doing. So how does she end up? I mean, I know this kind of you, you open at the end of the story, but I am wondering how she ends up in a situation where her orbital was broken uh, with the guy that runs this whole organization saying, we can't call, we can't call an ambulance. So, what ultimately ended up happening with the woman that we call Allison is that she was um, 
hired by OUR, you know, she's an independent contractor, but she, she signs on with OUR to work on Tim Ballard's sort of personal operations team. And she went on this mission in the British Virgin Islands that we describe in the piece that she found pretty disturbing. She didn't think that there was a lot of actual sort of like intelligence gathering going on. There was certainly no rescuing anyone from trafficking that happened on that trip. Um, they were hanging out at a luxury private island assigned, you know, um, paid for and run by, you know, people with a business relationship with OUR. And then um, Mr. Ballard and the woman assigned to play his wife or girlfriend were going to strip clubs ostensibly to gather intelligence. And Allison and her partner were kind of trailing behind them. That's that's kind of what happened. Um, so Allison came home from that trip uh, pretty sort of disillusioned with specifically Tim Ballard's operational missions and sort of principles. And so she thought to herself, okay, um, I want to give OUR as an organization another chance. And she had always heard that Thailand was the region where OUR was operating the best, where they were doing the best work, where it was the most functional, where they had the strongest relationship with the government, which is um, sort of a separate issue given that the Thai government was until very recently a military dictatorship. So every time someone says that, I'm like, okay. But um, so what she decided to do was OUR invited previous folks who had worked as operators on previous missions to attend this training in Salt Lake um, with the idea that it would be a way to network, um, to, you know, potentially get herself assigned to the Thailand team and to sort of see how OUR was operating outside of just Tim Ballard's sort of orbit. Right. Um, So what happened though, when she got there was that there were a series of exercises and one of them was this uh, essentially like grappling exercise where she ended up getting hurt. Um, And so Tim, you have a better grasp on that than I do, but functionally I think the assignment was that teams were, supposed to fight over a fake knife at the center of a gym mat. Is that basically right? Yeah. So um, this took place in the CrossFit gym under OUR's headquarters, which I will, I will just leave right there. Of course they have a CrossFit gym. Of course it's right under their, you know, their offices. Um, So there are about 60 people there of whom four were women. And Allison was the oldest, uh, the most experienced, really the only one with, a relevant background here. So when the exercise, the exercise is described as they're going to put two wood knives in the middle of like a big jujitsu mat and put two uh, teams of two at each of the four corners of the mat. And then they're going to scramble to, uh, to get the knives in the middle of the mat. And she remembers thinking, this is just a really bad idea. So in a way, this whole exercise is OUR and microcosm because on the actual missions they went on, basically what they were doing was going from, you know, going to massage parlors, going to strip clubs, going to bars and just asking around like, Hey, are you trafficking any women or girls? Like I'm looking to party. And we have, um, you know, a big cache of their own reports on these. And it's, it's absurd. Like, like Ballard just goes into uh, an upscale spot in the British Virgin Islands and he's like asking for a hand job. I don't know if I can say that, but he's, he's asking for uh you know, something that's not on the menu. And even in this report, it's expressed that, you know, the women are are pretty bewildered. They're like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And then as, as, as he and his partner leave, like one woman 
slips her card and says like, you know, come talk to me, you know, we can, we can have a special time. This is his, you know, he finds this, this is a big evidence of trafficking, but there was no need for, you know, no one was using any guns. There was no physical combat or anything like that. It's just people essentially pretending to be sex tourists and going and gathering information, despite which they had a shooting range. They had all these kind of testosterone fueled exercises that they were doing to, you know, separate the weak from the strong or whatever. So there's no need for this exercise. It serves no no purpose, whatever, aside from having a largely male contingent of. Yeah, if you're scrambling, if you're doing this kind of operation and you're scrambling for a knife on the ground, like you've already fucked up in a big way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like LARPing, basically, I think would be the best way to describe it, especially because, you know, Ballard, despite his pretensions to being this kind of paramilitary leader, is someone with no real military or intelligence background. But anyway. So she there, you know, she's on the corner of the mat. She's like, this is a really bad idea. Someone's going to get hurt. Um, we should be wearing headgear, but I'm going to go through with it because I don't want to send the message that like women are weak or, you know, that I'm going to call this off because I'm just a pretty face and I don't want to get hurt. And then she gets hurt really, really badly. I've seen video of it. Um, and it's not the fault of the guy who did it. You know, he wasn't trying to hurt her or anything. It was just an ill-conceived exercise but you know he's very aggressively diving in from for the knife and his knee hits her flush on the side of you know right on the side of her head um and then there's another guy who's also scrambling for the knife and and he hits her and he just she just crumples immediately the video cuts off there but um you know someone else who was there confirmed her confirmed her account that like basically like her eye basically exploded her the structure around her eye she's bleeding all over the place she can't see anything um, and then she hears Ballard say, well, we can't, you know, we can't call an ambulance. So Ballard and OUR didn't answer our questions about this story. I would love to know why he said that, if there was a liability issue or something in, in, in fairness to OUR. So what happened was their director of security, who was her partner in the couple's roost on, on the mission she went on, drove her to the hospital. Put a pin in couple's um, roost audience, by the yeah, way. We're, we're coming back. Yeah, 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 we'll get there. Um, took her to the hospital, stayed there with her. Um, she had a long and really fraught recovery because she, her insurance, um, was out of state. So she ran up tens of thousands of dollars in medical bills. Ballard never came to visit her. She had to be stabilized and then brought back home. And then she had caught COVID. She believes at this, um, at this training exercise. And so she had to deal with that. And then, you know, because of when this is, is 2021, her her surgery, because the injury wasn't immediately life-threatening and it didn't need to be immediately done to reconstruct her, you know, her orbital bone was deemed elective. So she had to wait weeks and weeks and weeks um, to get the surgery done. It was just a, a horrible situation all around. Um, she eventually did get it done. She's, she's still got some eye problems, but um, she's recovered very well and in fairness to our they did uh, uh pay for the surgery she submitted her bills to them they took care of them so the whole the whole the whole incident is really horrifying but it's also i think it would be fair to say it's kind of our and microcosm for a lot of the people who volunteered for it and that they're people who uh are pretty universally going in with good intentions and they're people who in various ways have some kind of qualification that would uh, 
you know, help them do private undercover operations in concert with foreign well, governments. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I might be overstating the case. Many yeah. people did. Many, many other people, none of that is true of, but but who get into the situation and then end up getting hurt, not because of the inherent dangers of the work they were volunteering to do, but because it was poorly organized, poorly conceived, poorly executed. Like there was no reason for anybody to be scrambling for knives on that. It served no purpose whatsoever. And you can extrapolate to many of the other situations where people have been put in real legitimate danger on these missions um, that was happening for no, no good reason, not even in the immediate sense. Like there was, you know, there, there are a couple of things we describe in the story where they were very risky and um, that risk wasn't attached to any um, increase in the ability of OUR to save any particular women or children. It was, it was just foolishness. I think the important point to make here, too, is that OUR, people who have worked as operators for OUR have been a mixture. Some of them have been people like Allison, ex-military, folks wanting to put their training and their skills to use. Other people have been high-level OUR donors. For example, there have been a lot of like uh, guys involved in real estate who have gone on OUR missions, like other sort of movers and shakers in this sort of Utah business environment um, were, you know, big OUR donors and people who ended up going on missions. And so when we look at exercises like the one where Allison got hurt, in a lot of ways to me, it feels like it was something meant to make those donors feel like something, they were part of something exciting, something uh, sort of James Bond-esque. James Bond is not the right term, but I have seen so few action movies. Jason that Bourne. I, Jason Bourne. Jason yes, Bourne. Jason Bourne. Sorry, I did just watch Taken on an airplane recently, <laughs> which has come up so many times when we've been doing OUR reporting. So I finally watched Taken. It's a great movie. Um, very, very racist, but, um, you know, a great, great action movie otherwise, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I think, I think things like grappling or weapons training, which Allison also did, uh, those are things that were meant to make folks feel like they were embarking on an exciting and dangerous and secretive mission, even though, as you say, Gal, they you should not be grappling with a knife when you're on these missions. And you definitely, definitely, definitely should not be handling weapons. That is not a thing that you should be doing in a foreign country. And as far as we know, OUR cert didn't do that. They didn't no, I mean, firearms that, that, in foreign countries. That'd be really yeah. bad. I think about the trailer for Sound of Freedom, which I have seen so many times in Mm. editing various videos about Tim Ballard and the organization. And there's this one clip where it's basically like a D-Day scene where like a pair, like a military troop with, you know, body armor, giant guns come running off of a boat in like the Amazon onto like this beach to try and save this child. And I'm like, I this this isn't how this actually goes. Well, so that did happen, but it was okay. a joint operation between the Colombian military and HSI. Right. There was like OUR was not empowered to carry guns or storm a beach. And so when you see that footage and when OUR says as they have said many times like this really happened, yes, it did because the military and HSI, the Colombian military, are empowered to carry guns in Colombia. So every time you see any kind of OUR footage that involves guns or is supposedly an armed rescue, like that is that is because it was done 
in concert and cooperation with people who are allowed to carry guns. I have so many, <laughs> so many questions. I have nothing but time. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> well, the, the, the story is so big and there's so much strangeness and we've touched on so many little pieces of the strangeness. Um, I think I want to start with what were, what was the, the onboarding process for her? Like, what did she expect it to be? What did it actually be? What, what did it actually end up being? And then, uh, can you describe what it was like when she met Ballard for the first time? These are, these are great questions. So <clears throat> she went into the process, um, basically buying into OUR's marketing and that's not a knock on her. It's a very sophisticated marketing operation that, you know, held up for a long time. She believed that it was, you know, an undercover, um, elite paramilitary group that was comprising like, former Navy SEALs, members of special forces, CIA operatives, like people who were carrying out really sophisticated intelligence operations and then planning uh, missions really precisely on the basis of like really specific intelligence. So she thought she would go in, be trained in undercover work, be trained in like bespoke technologies they were using, whether equipment or apps. Um, that she would be familiarized with with targets and, and locations and you know, just just things like that. I don't know that she had a super specific idea of what it would be, but that, that was a reasonable set of assumptions. What happened was she was so she was flown out to Utah, put up in a hotel about a five minute walk from OUR headquarters. She came over. There were several men there. The the director of security. Um, a volunteer who was the CEO or not the CEO, but, but worked at, uh, the Nazarene fund of Glenn Beck, uh, founded anti-trapping group of which Ballard was at the time, the CEO and another couple of people. I'm not going to name them just because their, their names are slipping my mind, but a group of, oh, you are high groups basically. And they just go into this, you know, it's like a little conference room and, uh, they say, you know, Tim will be here in a little bit. And she's like, wow, she's not expecting that. And it becomes clear to her that she's there to interview for his operations team, which surprises her that he even has one because, you know, this guy is really well known. He's the head of OUR. She presumes he's too busy to be, you know, going running around in the Caribbean, uh, saving trafficking victims, but she's like, okay. And too well-known. She assumed yeah. that his face was just too out there to be an undercover operator. But uh, he comes in and she says he's he's vibrating with personality disorder. Uh, he uh, is, she said, he's a really big energetic presence. He comes over, he gives her a hug. He's so excited to meet her. Her resume is so impressive. Um, you know, he starts laying out basically what he does, which is that he leads a team that has responsibility for uh, for the Caribbean and Mexico. And within half an hour, he's telling her about the couples ruse and presenting it as really, really central to what his team does. So the couples ruse in his telling, and um, he's been, you know, he and his wife have been talking about this publicly over the last couple of months. The couples ruse is a male operator who's on these undercover missions is accompanied by a female operator. And the purpose of that, who's playing his girlfriend or his wife. And the purpose of that is so that they're, if they're in a situation where, say, a trafficker expects him to touch uh, to, to touch a, a victim, 
to have sex with them, to do anything, uh, you know, inappropriate or that he doesn't want to do. She's there to basically, as they put it, cock block that she's there to say, oh, not now, honey. We're going to save that for later. Are those the words they use? Cock block? Yes, yes. that's that's the word Allison says Ballard used. And also there's a court filing in which a woman who was a participant in the verse says that it was described to her that she was a cock blocker. So, um, so he, he describes this to her and at the time he and, uh, another person who was there, uh, you know, confirmed this Ballard presented it as a situation in which there would be no physical contact, really that the man doesn't touch the woman in any way when he touches his own mother and that she's there to just to prevent him from being put in a situation where like he would have to inappropriately touch, you know, especially a minor. Um, and she thought this was a little weird for, for obvious reasons. The most glaring and obvious question is why would a pedophile sex tourist um, be bringing his wife or girlfriend on his sex tourism trip where he's trying to find minor children to have sex with um doesn't really fit it doesn't really fit the profile but her her thinking was a he's the expert like he's the globally renowned expert on you know directly rescuing people from trafficking situations and also um i think people I think people probably underestimate how many women are involved in trafficking. Like it made sense to her that you would want to have a woman there to talk to the women who are there because they tend to be able to make children more comfortable with them. So especially if you're dealing with a situation with young children, they're probably going to be, uh, you know, they're probably going to be women involved. And, and on that level, it made sense to her that she would be able to have different conversations or access different spaces than he would. And that the two of them working as a team could be more effective. Like the, 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 the major objection aside about why, why would the wife even be there? Um, she did think it made sense. So uh, another person who's there doesn't remember this, but doesn't, you know, definitively say it didn't happen. He just doesn't remember it. But as she remembers it, he, Ballard, you know, leans into her and, and is like, you know, this is, this is something you have to really commit to. You have to be there. You know, you have to be in character 24 um, seven. You know, the, the idea being, even if we're in a hotel room together, the traffickers might have it bugs. So we have to, you know, we have to play up the role. We have to be seen as doing this at all times. And she's like, yeah, I'm a professional. I can, you know, I'll do whatever needs to be done. If this is what needs to be done, I can do that. And he asks her to look around at his, you know, male associates. Remember, this is, uh, you know, she's a she's a, a, a tough woman, but she's nonetheless, a, you know, a single woman in a room with four or five, four or five men. Um, and he asks her to look around and tell him who she could most comfortably do the couples ruse with, which is essentially saying. Yeah, who are you most attracted to here? And this is about half an hour after they met. So she just, she figured he was uh, testing her. And she says, she just looked him in the eye and was like, it doesn't matter to me. You know, I'm a professional, like, I'll, you know, I'll do this with whoever I need to do it with. He then 
uh, asked the men to leave the room. And because she had a really, uh, she had a really severe undercut at the time. He asked her if she was gay. She said she wasn't. He asked her if she was bi. And she said she was. And she says he got really, really, really excited about that. Like really excited. Um, and, and was telling her about how, you know, she's going to be seeing these, uh, she's going to be seeing these trafficking victims and it'll be really helpful if she's attracted to them. Like that'll really help her. And this struck her as really weird. And it's something that other OUR volunteers we've talked to have had similar experiences where somebody, uh, you know, has told them about like the uncontrollable sexual attraction they're going to have to like, you know, what they're portraying as actively enslaved women. Like <laughs> the assumption, like the baseline assumption is you as a bi woman are going to see these sexually enslaved women and you're going to be uncontrollably attracted to them. Like you're just going to be really turned on really hot and that's going to help us. All right. Cyber listeners want to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking around. We are back on with Anna Merlin and Tim Marchman talking about Tim Ballard. We're kind of leaving the story behind a little bit, but I do want to focus on like Ballard and his personality um, because it really comes through, I think, in this piece, uh, the, the vibrating with the personality disorder. And also there's a lot of stuff in here about how he had a direct one. on. He says that he has a direct one on one relationship with God. And often the plans would come because he had had a, a download or a conversation with God. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the context, like some people listening will hear that and, and uh, have a pretty strong reaction. And then I think that it, within the context of like Christian religions and the LDS church specifically, and Emily, I know that this is a, a hobby horse of yours. Um, that's not that strange, right? It doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's not strange. Mm-hmm. No, so I think so. Just to put a pin in what we were talking about earlier, the the upside of the um, onboarding she experienced was at the end of this first day where she met Ballard, um, Allison, or it might have been the next day, but it was very soon after their meeting. Um, he wanted her to go to Mexico with him on an undercover operation that started set to start in ten days. So there was no, you know, you're going to be trained or we're going to give you intel update anything like that it was just boom we're gonna go um which shows you how seriously these people's safety was uh being taken into consideration um yeah so ballard i think what's unusual about ballard's uh relationship to like his direct relationship to god is that we're not talking about the sort of thing many 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 people experience of a personal you know like a personal connection to the divine and ineffable sense he would talk about spiritual he would talk about spiritual downloads and it's basically the revelation of information it's not like i was praying and i felt god's grace 
it's like God told me actionable, specific things. <laughs> like, do you think that's fair, Anna? Uh, yeah, God. God was involved in the in the operations planning. Yeah, like at one point, um, one of so one of the people on Ballard's team, uh, a man named Jeremy Locke, who was involved with this private island, um, he had drawn up a. 70 page research document on the potential targets, which we have reviewed and we published some excerpts from in the story. And it's actually, it's really pretty funny stuff because it appears he basically like went on Google maps and pulled up a bunch of bars and like massage parlors in the area, took photos of them. Uh, and you know, and then there's, there's text like no indication of human trafficking, no indication of human trafficking. We should, we should still check it out. So. Uh, Allison says that Ballard basically tossed this, you know, tossed this out, says, yeah, we don't need to waste all our time with that. It actually sounds kind of Trump-like. Like, I'm sure you've heard those stories about, like, you know, some CIA guy will bring Trump, like, a 75-page dossier on Hamas or whatever, and then one of Trump's handlers would be like, we need to fit this all onto, like, one slide. He doesn't have the attention span for anything more than that. Um, but he, you know, Ballard allegedly said, God will tell us who the targets were on one of these missions on the fly. Uh, Ballard assigned Allison as like the primary interface between her and a suspected trafficker who really just sounds like a standard issue camp. Um, but said, you know, gave her to understand that like God had told him to do this because this was taking place in, during the pandemic, they had to quarantine on a private Island before they could actually go out into the British Virgin islands to do these missions. And during a lot of that time, he would sequester himself in like a hut and come out and he would tell everyone like, yeah, you know, really powerful information there. Like as, as he was giving out, he was, you know, he was like talking to God or receiving information from, like specific information from God that he wouldn't, he wouldn't get into what it was, but he was, you know, yeah, it was, you know, God was giving me this information. And yeah, that's a lot, that's a lot more unusual. That's not like, you know, I felt the presence of God. That's like, God told me to check my tax returns from two years ago because I might've made a rounding error. That's, that's a different thing. Maybe Emily knows more about well, that. I, I, as you're talking about this, I just wanted to bring up um, a person who is not in this story, but has been in other reporting, which is Janet, the psychic mm. um, yes. who claimed to be speaking directly to the Mormon prophet Nephi in, you know, getting information about what they should be doing and, you know, where potential victims of trafficking were that mm-hmm. they were trying to find specifically in the case of Gardy Marty. Yeah. This was one of OUR's most closely held secrets was that, um, this woman, Janet Russin, who is a LDS, um, psychic medium was very, very deeply involved in operational planning and that her visions guided where they went to look for Gardy and other children. Um, this has recently become a subject of a great deal of controversy in Utah because it turns out that Utah attorney general Sean Reyes, who's a friend of OUR's and Tim Ballard's, um, knew about Janet, the psychic's role in the organization and didn't, um, didn't say anything. Um, in the past, when we've asked OUR about this, they have defended the use of a psychic and they have said that law enforcement agencies use psychics all the time. Um, which even if it is true, does not make it a good idea. There's no evidence that Janet's Ms. Russin's psychic visions ever 
led to rescuing a, a single child or person. Yeah. And I don't want to overstep my theological knowledge here, but I do think it's worth noting that in, you know, in Mormonism, this kind of direct revelation is a very common thing and it's very integral to, to the religion. Like there's nothing necessarily weird about that. It does get tricky because, you know, if you go back to the 19th century, part of the founding premise of the religion is everybody can have a direct connection to God. And you start getting problems then when you have people running the church and then other people said, well, I talked to God and he says I should be in charge of the church. Mm. So you start getting these um, rules and boundaries around it, which uh, to my understanding, using your purported uh, connection to the divine, either personally or through a psychic medium to raise hundreds of millions of dollars on what appear to be false pretenses. This would not be consistent with uh you know, the, the, the uses of divine revelation in, in the faith. I'm sorry. Uh, they quarantined on a private Island, by the way. They did. So um, when they arrived in the British Virgin islands, they went to a private Island owned by a woman named Brittany Turner, who is, as we understand it, like a multimillionaire businesswoman who also has a keen interest in fighting um, human trafficking and so um, OUR was given the use of this island for free. They didn't have to pay for it. Otherwise, it would have been, I think their website now says that it cost $25,000 a night. Is that right, Tim? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were put up in what Allison describes as these luxury accommodations, the likes of which she had never seen before. When she describes it, it sounds like what you see in Glass Onion in the film where everybody arrives by boat to this private island. So they arrived by boat. They were greeted by a phalanx of staff members who drove them each to their own sort of private um, luxury huts. And then every day that they were quarantining, there was a very um, elaborate schedule. There were, you know, dinners and all these different dining spaces. There was an all vegan diet. The staff wore all black. Allison remembers most of them as having long blonde hair. It's this very, very striking, very cinematic, very, very, very luxurious accommodations. And during this time, their schedules are mapped out super minutely. There are like nine outdoor spaces where they can have dinner. So we've seen the um, the kind of schedules they were given every day. It's managed down to the minute. You know, it's like, we're going to wake up at seven. We're going to do yoga on the beach. Then we're going to have a healing vegan breakfast at, you know, dining spot X. Uh, then you're going to have an hour of free time. Then we're all going to go meditate on, you know, this, this hill, like all day, all super down to the, uh, you know, down to the minute. And one thing we didn't get in the story and, uh, you know, Brittany Turner and her group, Aerial Recovery, didn't uh, respond to our request for comment. So we'll just put this in the category of uh, things we believe happened, but haven't gotten corroborated, you know, full corroboration of is that one person who was on the island had brought in some Diet Coke and Turner was extremely, extremely upset about this that there was like impure uh, food on the island. And she uh, appears to have banned this person from ever coming back. Maybe that was rescinded. Maybe this was all a miscommunication, but definitely the vibe, um, you know, definitely the vibe uh, Allison got. (laughs) This was a very controlled environment. And that part of the purpose of this OUR team going to this, Island, which it refers to in its own internal documents as the Caribbean 
Command Center was to discuss construction of a facility where donors could go and monitor operations in real time. Like it almost sounds like a lot of this stuff. It sounds to me like something someone of my Ballard is about five years older than me, but he's, he's roughly my age. Someone roughly my age who grew up watching GI Joe, like what their idea of undercover operations would be like, literally like we're going to set up our command center on, you know, our Island base and then <laughs> code name Riptide is going to take us out on boats you know, to surveil Cobra. Like this was, this was apparently one of the, you know, one of the ideas that Turner and Ballard were discussing for how to unite their groups. The mission that we talked about in the article is actually a joint mission between Operation Underground Railroad and Aerial Recovery. When you see the briefing documents that they created, they look like something in a GI Joe movie. There are these like sort of faux classified stamps at the top like the typeface looks like something that would come out of like a you know um computer from an action movie in the 80s like it is very the the design choices were very striking to me yeah it really the whole like the 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 larp aspect is really striking reading through it and talking to you but it also feels like this this is speculative but it feels like a way for someone like Ballard to edge up real close to some middle-aged dude sex party stuff and not quite do it. I think that's a fair observation. I don't want to get into my own theories um, about like the broader purpose of OUR. But I will say that we have absolutely had people who participated in these missions say that they were under the impression that at least some of the volunteers, especially the donors, their interest in going on these missions was that they could engage in behaviors they wouldn't at home, that under the cover of going under on a mission that to their understanding was blessed by the LDS church or hires up within the LDS church, they had license to go to strip clubs you know, in some cases, maybe patronize sex workers to drink alcohol, to engage in other forbidden behaviors under religious cover and under the moral authority of saving trafficking victims. Now, that's not to say that every person who participated did those things, that that was their motivation. We have definitely talked to people who have very pure motives and very good intentions. Um, but yeah, that is certainly at the heart of this is the distinction between performing sex tourism and engaging in sex tourism. And at least from what we saw in this mission, there, they, they, there doesn't seem to be much of a distinction. If you are going to, you know, if you're, if you're spending a week going to strip clubs and, and dive bars and massage parlors, um, you know, patronizing sex workers, not the, I don't, I don't want to say that Ballard, um, you know, like, had sex with a prostitute. He didn't, but he is, you know, he's going to massage parlors and asking for off menu items, things of that nature. Um, at some point, especially when you're insisting on living um, a luxurious lifestyle while you're on these and the guise of, Oh, well, you know, I'm playing a wealthy sex source. So I have to be seen to be a wealthy sex source. So I have to have first class accommodations. I have to have first class travel. I have to have a catamaran to get around it. 
yeah, it's like, you know, are, is this all stuff you need to do to save children? Or do you want to be on a catamaran going around to strip clubs? It's a completely legitimate question to ask. And, and, you know, when we really, really hope uh, Tim Ballard will, will answer either to, to us or to someone else someday. A related question we also had just briefly is that for some of the time that they were quarantining on this private island, Tim Ballard's wife, Catherine, came and joined them for the vegan breakfasts and the catamaraning and whatnot. And so a very basic question we have is like, why would she have been there if this was, um, you know, the precursor to a mission? Once the mission began, they were no longer staying on the island, but this was, you know, supposedly their quarantine and sort of training and, you know, um, there was no training. <laughs> right. But like, that was what was supposed to be they happening. So why character. would Catherine Ballard? Right. So why would Catherine Ballard have been there? And so this is a question that we've asked Mr. Ballard. This is a question we've asked OUR is like, was it customary for people who are not involved in missions to come on what to maybe the untrained eye, such as myself, look look like luxury vacations. So like what was going on there? Um, so again, another thing that we would love to talk about is, someday. So he's not doing the couple's ruse with his wife then? No. no. So that's a strange element here. Um, among the party on the island, among his ops team, was a woman who had been performing the couple's ruse with him. Um, and, you know, I think before I described the couple's ruse in terms of what Ballard said it was, but it's very important to say that according to uh, lawsuits that have been filed and, you know, the things Allison saw and experienced are consistent with this, the couple's ruse involved uh, involved sex acts. It involved grooming, it involved coercion, and, you know, not to get too graphic here, but the things that Ballard is alleged to have portrayed as necessary to getting into character and creating the sexual chemistry necessary to fool traffickers include oral sex. They include um, orgies with uh, with sex workers. There, there's a case where one woman describes two um, two women in a massage parlor, like touching her sexually and her having to submit to it at Ballard's behest. Uh, it involves him tucking his penis between his legs and dry humping a woman in front of other people, like saying that he had come up with this tactic to make it appear as if he was having sex with her while he wasn't actually doing so. Showering, um, nudity, sleeping in bed together. And keep in mind that from what we know of how he got women into these situations, he was saying, you know, I won't touch you any way other than I would touch my mother. There's actually a contract that Allison says she signed, we reproduced a, a similar contract that was uh, put in one of the lawsuits that was filed in Utah, in which uh, the operator, the male operator and the female operator, who are part of the couple's ruse, each signed it, promising not to touch each other's genitals or kiss each other on the mouth. So it's um, so that is what the couple's ruse is, according to these women's descriptions. And Ballard had with him on the island. Um, at the same time that his wife was a woman who, um, to our understanding, believed at the time that it was necessary for her to engage in a sexual relationship with Ballard to save children because it was God's will. Um, our understanding is that while his wife was there, Ballard stayed away from her as much as possible. It's not like he was flaunting this relationship to his wife. But 
it's still in it's still intensely strange and there are a lot of there are a lot of questions that aren't answered um about why this seemed like a good idea or, or an appropriate thing to do and it's interesting too cuz i feel like you know there's that podcast that tim ballard and his wife went on to talk about the couple's ruse and to kind of answer you know questions that the public had over the couple's ruse and the person that was doing the most defense of it was Catherine Ballard. This She's is the Adam the Carolla podcast. This is, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Catherine Ballard was a very vigorous defender on that podcast of the couple's ruse. And I, I I should just clarify, we have no reason to think that she's not being completely sincere. Um, we do have, I guess, reason to question how much she would have been aware of, or, you know, I I I I I, I don't believe that Tim Ballard was probably telling her everything that he was doing, I think would, would be a fair thing to say. And and anyone can take that where, where they want it. I mean, I, I believe guess. that they say on the podcast that it was very unpleasant for her to hear about the language that he had to use while he was in character. He would be very crass. He would be covered in these fake tattoos, you know, which they showed an image of him in his um underwear festooned in these fake tattoos and so that she didn't she didn't like seeing that side of him so this is not just our conjecture this is literally her having said that that was not something that she wanted to see or hear about isn't it bad opsec for the person that is on monday night football who is talking about this who's the face of this organization uh to also then be one of its biggest operators yeah it would seem to be. So um, the way that OUR and Mr. Ballard have explained this is that he traveled with a hairdresser and a makeup artist, um, that he wore colored contacts, that he changed his appearance. Um, that was also the reason for the fake tattoos. Um, the fake tattoos are confusing because they look very, very, very fake. Uh, and it is hard for me to believe that they would have been convincing which is no 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 knock on the the artist who was um airbrushing these on i'm sure she works hard uh but yeah i mean in at various points in the past mr ballard has has said that he is so recognizable that he can't do operations anymore he said that a few times and has um said that pretty definitively more recently that he is no longer going to go on undercover ops i believe they also talked about that on Adam Carolla that that's 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 in his past which seems like a good idea. Yeah, it's a strange thing so we submitted an extremely detailed request for comment to Operation Underground Railroad. We came about as close as you can to just sending them the story, which obviously we don't do, but you know, the story just consists of fact claims and every fact claim that they might have had a response to or been in a position to dispute we put to them. The only the only question they answered had to do with um Ballard on operations, they they really wanted to make a point of saying that in his last couple of years at the organization, he hadn't gone on many operations at all. And that he had really wound that down. Um perhaps due to his his recognizability. We don't know. But they they were they were pretty emphatic about that. Um and didn't want to answer literally any other question. So take that as you want. Another strange, I mean, there's so many strange aspects of this, but another strange aspect of the story is that Allison says she was, Ballard was constantly testing the couple's ruse mm. uh, while they were on the catamaran, while they were on this private island. What what exactly did she mean? Um, so she was, 
there to carry out the couples ruse with a man named Matt Cooper, who is OUR's, was OUR's director of security and a very close associate of Ballard's. Um, I think they lived next to each other at one point and their relationship has been described to us as like an older brother, younger brother relationship, or even a, a father figure relationship on Ballard's part. So Ballard made very clear to Allison. She says that during their time on the island, she really needed to practice the couple's years with Cooper. She needed to be close um, with him. She needed to be intimate. She needed to develop this chemistry. Now, uh, Allison likes Cooper to this day. She thinks highly of him. She thinks he's someone who was in his own way a victim, who was manipulated by someone he looked up to and respected. But um, so she was comfortable she was comfortable with the physical element of it to a certain point that if we're going to be seen at a bar and we're supposed to be portraying a couple, you know, I'll sit in his lap. Uh, I forget the specifics, but maybe nibble on his ear, that, that sort of thing, you know, just kind of public displays of affection, but she had no intention whatsoever of sleeping with him or anything like that. So they were, she said that Ballard would, um, you know, kind of continuously pressure them to be more intimate. I think at one point, he did the thing where you make a that like six year olds do, where you make a hole with one hand and you poke your index finger in the hole with the other. Um, he would, you know, if they were like sitting on a, a couch together, kind of, you know, sitting like really proximate, he would encourage them to get closer together. Um, they were staying in, they were sharing the cabin of uh, of this boat for a couple of nights, and she said. A couple of times a night, he would just burst in on them as if he expected to to catch them in the act. And that she took it in, uh, you know, in total is basically him trying to pressure the two of them into having sex. So there's all this buildup. All this leads to an op of some kind. The operation, the mission, the mission. Operation Marcel. What what actually happens on this mission? So. Yeah, as we understand it, the mission largely consisted of Mr. Ballard and the woman who was supposed to be playing his wife, girlfriend, romantic partner, going to strip clubs while Allison and Cooper trailed behind them in um, a car. So Ballard and the wife slash girlfriend figure who we refer to in the story as Kaylin were traveling around by boat and Allison and Cooper were following them in a car. And Allison had understood that they were going to be using like sophisticated technology to track Mr. Ballard and Kalen's like whereabouts. And as it turned out, what that meant was that they just used an app from the app store that like anyone can get um, called ATAC, like the civilian version of ATAC to track them. And so Mr. Ballard and Kalen would go to, you know, strip clubs and bars for, I think up- upwards of like seven hours is the, in Allison's memory, um, you know, looking for, I suppose someone who would offer them um, a trafficked woman or a trafficked child, which does not sound like it happened. Yeah. The closest, so the closest they seem to have gotten was they went to some bar and someone at the bar um, said, Hey, are you looking to party? Um, And said he could introduce them to a man we call Henry in the story. So even in OUR's own documentation of this, he he sounds like a pimp, which isn't to say he's a you know a great guy. He may he may not be, but it doesn't sound like he was trafficking anyone. He 
said, for instance, according to the documents, he could get them women from the Dominican Republic and Venezuela who were as young as 22. Now, that may be a trafficker. It may be that he has trafficked these women, um, that he's controlling their passports, that he's dictating um, their sex work. It's also entirely possible that, you know, he's just their colleague and that they had come to the British Virgin Islands to to do sex work. It's I'm sure it's a better place to do that than a lot of places. And that this guy was out looking for clients for them and that it was a totally above board relationship. So uh, Ballard seized on this guy as, you know, a, a potential trafficker, someone they needed to investigate. And he assigned Allison and Cooper to uh, rent an Airbnb, uh, make it look like they'd been partying there. They, they like brush their teeth and spit in the sinks and put Doritos all over the place and put beer in the fridge and arranged a meeting with this guy where he brought a, he brought a woman who appeared to be 19. She certainly didn't seem to be a, a minor. She may have been, but there was, there was nothing to Allison's eye that made her seem that way. Um, Ballard was Ballard begged off having sex with her with, uh, I think Kaylin feigned a headache and said like, Oh, you know, we need you to go. But Ballard said, Hey, I'll pay you for your time. And, you know, Allison, who was posing as a gay businesswoman who was interested in setting up future sex tourism, uh, at God's behest, according to Ballard, um, you know, basically said, Hey, we'll keep in touch. Um, and, and that was that. So the, yeah, that was the, that was basically the, what they got out of the ship was they found that at various tourist bars where you would not expect to be hives of, you know, underage sex trafficking, there was no evidence that they were hives of underage sex trafficking. And they found a pimp, which, you know, you would expect to find in the British Virgin Islands, um, who did not appear to and was not even purporting to, uh, you know, have any sex slaves for sale, let alone any minor children he was trafficking. There's just something so stark about the disconnect between the by the minute planned schedule on the private island where you can't even have Diet Coke because that's not, you know, to the standards of this vegan yoga retreat, you know, white lotus situation. And then having one of your operators be a butch gay businesswoman who is also intentionally being around the island with this guy that she's supposed to be sleeping with. Yeah. Allison said that it was just not narratively coherent. Like the best she could come up with is the idea was that like, she was a powerful butch businesswoman who also had this boy toy that she had brought along on her sex tourism business trip. Like the whole thing is just not totally um, cohesive. As, as a cover story, but that was, that was what they wanted her to do. So, yeah. They wanted her to dirt it up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, messing up the, messing up the uh, party house. That was what, Oh, sorry. No. Um, dirt it up actually refers to something else, which is uh, at some point, um, Allison was given a um, burner phone to use for this operation and um at some point she says she got a text message 
from Ballard on this burner phone. It said something like, how are you? I'm so excited for Mexico, followed by like heart eye emojis. And she was like, what do you mean? This is Allison. I'm not going to Mexico. What are you talking about? And Ballard apologized and was like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I thought this was Kaylin. And, you know, I needed to um, dirty up her phone for a upcoming mission to Mexico and dirty up from Allison's understanding and experience meant that Ballard was going to start um, sexting her to have sex in this phone. So presumably if traffickers later seize the phone to determine if these two people were actually a couple, they would see these um, sects and decide that they were indeed a couple. There's a lot of stuff about this in the lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Ballard would allegedly do this and then get really controlling about the phones. Like he would, he would be like, you have to delete, delete all your messages in front of me. Like we can't have this on the phone, but he would then um, send all these explicit sexual messages with the idea being that like, if he and the woman were going into a space with cartel members or traffickers or something, they might look at their phones and go through their texts to see if they'd been sexting, which would establish that they were a couple. And like a lot of this stuff, you know, not to get too takey or analytical about it, but it's all like, it was a really childish element to it. One thing I, I've thought about when I hear about these explanations for, you know, why these behaviors are necessary is just that like, if you took, you know, I've been married to my wife for a long time. We have kids. If you took my phone and started randomly scrolling through it, you wouldn't encounter like explicit sexual material. You would have a lot of stuff about like, People needing to buy cauliflower at the store or, you know. Yeah, if you wanted to make it look convincing, you would have, like, the, you know, person playing the wife or girlfriend texting that she's hungry, right? Yeah, it's like, like there's a lot of these little elements that are, like, we're uh, sex tourists on vacation together, so we have to be making out in these strip clubs. Um, or, like, we have to have constant horny communications on our phones that are, like, if anything, would come off as people... <laughs> People who were badly, you know, pretending to be a couple. And it betrays this like really weirdly immature um, set of ideas about like relationships, I guess. This is also a good spot to mention that Allison was surprised by the fact that the couple's ruse contract forbid um, kissing on the lips and touching each other's genitals. Because again, like she is somebody with military and like operational experience. And she was like, that's not a stipulation that professionals would agree to in an undercover setting. Like if you needed to kiss on the lips or for some reason have sex in an undercover setting, like that's a thing that professionals would do. You wouldn't, you wouldn't set up these very specific parameters, but I think it was, you know, seemingly meant to imply that there was a um, guardrails in place. That's certainly what Mr. Ballard has said. This leads me to Allison's breaking point, uh, which I think is really, she, she has like a very, I would say a very serious thought about how badly this could all go. It is involved in burner phones and uh, mm-hmm. she has a conversation where it's clear to her that these people are not thinking through what, what the fuck they're doing. Um, can you yeah. describe what happens? 
when she gets back. So Allison, yeah. So Allison is given this burner phone and she is asked to continue communicating with the man we call Henry about setting up a sex party in a few months time. Um, she's already concerned about the burner phone because she's gotten these texts from Ballard, uh, you know, seemingly meant for another person. And she's like, oh, they're not keeping track of these phones. They're not keeping track of the SIM cards. That's concerning to me. These phones could be trackable, you know, by cartels. Like she's, she's already worried about operational security. Um, but she's having this conversation with Henry in the U.S. She's back on U.S. soil and she's texting with Henry. And at one point he sends her an image of, a video, I believe, of some women dancing, meant to be like a taste of what he's going to produce for this sex party. And she receives this video and she thinks, oh my God, this could have been CSAM. This could have been child exploitation material. And if it had been, I would be in incredibly serious legal trouble. Something that OUR and its defenders often gloss over is as civilians, you cannot possess CSAM. You cannot look at CSAM it, you know, we know as reporters that we are, if we are sent anything that we even suspect might contain that it is an emergency. Um, you 100% cannot be looking at this stuff for any reason. It is illegal. And so Allison thinks like, wow, if I had just opened this video and it had been something other than what appear to be women who are adults dancing clothed, um, what was I going to do? Uh, so she calls Jeremy Locke of Aerial Recovery, who is at that point also the regional director for OUR for the Caribbean. Um, he's serving this dual role. And she says, what is the protocol for if I you know, receive CSAM? What am I supposed to do? And in her recollection, he instructed her to turn off the phone and send it back to OUR. And that was the, that was the solution. One thing I want to add here that's a little in the weeds, but I think goes to the gap between what OUR purported to be and what it was is that the CSAM is absolutely illegal to view or possess. However, there are, you know, there are people who for legitimate reasons will encounter it and have relationships with the government. So it's not like you get a license to look at whatever you want or possess whatever you want exactly. But if you are say, um, you know, if you're with NICMEC, if you are, uh, uh, you know, an academic researcher, um, if you're somebody who, you know, works with a platform who has to be involved in taking this material off your platform, you have institutional relationships, you know, with the FBI, with various task forces, with ICAC groups, um, so that you have uh, guardrails about that. You say, I was sent this material. I've encountered this material. Um, what do I do with it? So that you can then turn it over. You know, you have your contact at the FBI. You can turn it over. They can begin investigating where this came from. Like that, that is you know, that is, there are established protocols for that. What really shocked her and I think led to that being her breaking point is realizing that they did not have those protocols or relationships in place uh, to her knowledge, that they they certainly didn't have any sort of established operating procedure for what to do there. And, um, you know, that didn't and doesn't really make sense given that Ballard was a long-term uh, DHS employee and was absolutely in a position as you know, among other things, though, you're being a big donor to ICAC task forces to have those relationships. Like that should have been just something that was on paper that was given to her very early in her relationship with the group to say that, look, in the nature of this work, we understand we may come across illegal material. Um, the government is aware of that. 
you know, we are not operating under color of law, but we have relationships in place. If you come across this material, this is what we do. Um, there was none of that to her awareness. It seems like such a basic question to have like a first order thing to have established. And Ballard has, there are a lot of questions that come up um, about Ballard in this regard, just that he has talked in public about like the psychic damage of viewing so much CSAM. Um, And our understanding of his government work is that he wouldn't have really been in a position to uh, watch much of that material. Maybe that's wrong, but it begs the question of if he is he encountering this in his role uh, with OUR and his role as a private operator because it's categorically forbidden for him to you know be viewing or in possession of that material. So um, you know there may be good answers to those questions, and it may of course be that he's uh, exaggerating um, his role. But then you get the question of why would he do that? I just am thinking about you know we we had the lawsuit with what it's the five women that came forward about participating in the couple's ruse. And this is really, you know, the first time that you both have been able to speak to someone and, and hear about their experiences. Um, I mean, there are these five women, there's Allison. It just seems like more information continues to come out about. Yeah. You know. So there is, so Ballard um, is being looked at by the police in Linden, Utah, as Anna mentioned, in connection with a claim of sec- a criminal claim of sexual assault. Our understanding is that there are several other uh, criminal investigations in various uh, preliminary stages. Like certainly, um, you know, certainly people at the federal, state, and local level read the newspaper. They read Vice. Like they they read. You know, they're they're looking at these lawsuits. They're aware that there are things for them to look into. Um, and so we believe that a lot more information is going to, is going to come out in the course of these suits and investigations. And the other really important element here is that we're talking about, you know, women who say they were victimized by, by Ballard in the course of volunteering for OUR. But there are a lot of questions about OUR's operations all over the world. Um, we've reported in the past on, um, you know, sex workers that OUR claims to have saved and, uh, you know, what happened with them in some cases when they reached the U.S. But there's a great deal we we simply don't know. The mission we're talking about is one where they never really encountered um, any trafficking victims or, you know, even any sex workers they wanted to rescue from sex works. But there absolutely have been, um, you know, many situations where where they did. and. You know, we don't know if there are victims among those women, um, ranging from them possibly having been subjected to sexual coercion or sexual violence to simply them not having been treated well while they were, so to speak, in OUR's custody. Um, We did report on one case of a former OUR operator named Paul Hutchinson who groped a woman's breast who he claims was of age. Um, But this is you know, clearly someone who did not welcome his touch, who, you know, according to an investigator who viewed a video of the incident, like slapped his hand away and pulled her shirt down. And so, you know, we, we are curious if there are more incidents of that nature that are, you know, um, and so we continue to hope to, to reach, um, you know, sex workers and, you know, folks who might have come into contact with OUR, but they're um, somewhat harder to find, especially internationally. Yeah. So 
it's it's one thing we just keep in mind is that there's definitely because this is because there are people seeking justice criminally and civilly there's going to be a lot more information coming out we can hope that you know there 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 is justice but it's really unlikely that's going to happen internationally um for a lot of reasons like the the u.s agencies that are most interested in investigating this aren't going to have jurisdiction and you know i don't know i don't know how high it's a priority it's going to be um either for u.s agencies or international ones um especially in in a country like thailand where our is you know evidently tight with the government are they going to be um interested in commissioning a you know a lengthy and resource intensive investigation into you know whether there are more victims and to be clear by saying that um i'm not implying that there are i'm saying there may be it would bear investigation um it may well come out that there aren't we would we would hope there are. but you know we just we just don't know and it's a reasonable line of inquiry given what we do know well, I'm sure that as the story unfolds, you'll be back on to tell us all about the next absolutely incredible thing that gets unearthed here. God help us. Yeah, God help us indeed. Anna Merlin, Tim Marchman, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and uh, walking us through this very complicated um, and at turns surreal and horrifying story. Thank you for having us. Indeed. For your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.